Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hey everyone, welcome back to Podside Picnic. I'm here once again with the intrepid Pete, my co-host, and we're doing something we've been promising for a long time. That's right, it's the Trader Barry Cormorant. No, I'm actually kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Entirely different promise. A different promise. One day, one of these days, that's that's our, that's kind of our like, um, Jimmy Kimmel, uh, like Matt Damon joke. Is though like Matt Damon couldn't be here tonight. That's our the Trader Barry Cormorant could not be here this week. But no, t- what we're actually doing is something we have been talking about for at least a few months, which is Islands in the Net by Bruce Sterling. And Sterling is someone we've talked about a lot contextually in the history of cyberpunk. Uh, someone Pete and I had talked about before the show ever launched. And this is the first time that I'm reading an entire novel by Sterling. Uh, there is a little bit of a twist here, which is that. Pete and I have decided that if we're going to read books, especially books that are, you know, several hundred pages as this one is, um, we're probably, if it's both of us reading it, we're probably going to try to extract a couple pieces of content from those books. And part of that is just like our capacity to read things. Part of it's also that, you know, often 45 minutes um, is not enough to fully do justice to a full novel. Um, And I think with I think with this one, we have a lot to talk about. Right, it's also yeah, it's also a big ask of the audience. You know, it's like if we're if we're going to be talking about a book in depth, um, and we're kind of hoping you'll read it, covering it once over a forty-five minute minute period and never picking it up again, kind of sucks. So, like discussing it more in depth, looking at it, and giving you an opportunity to, you know form an argument against what we're saying or agree, I think is the way to go. Yeah, this could be more of a dialogue. Like, we're going to do at least three episodes on this, if not four, depending on how things shake out. Um, And they'll be spread out. They won't probably all be right in a row. So we might collect questions from patrons, uh, for instance, for one of those episodes, that kind of thing. We've done this before, like, we had a full month on Dune. um, And that was great. And I I think Pete and I would both like to recapture some of that spirit. So... uh, for today, we're just doing roughly the first third of Islands in the Net, which I started reading a while ago. So I will confess that I don't remember everything from the very first part super sharply, but I've read the like uh, second sixth, if you will, pretty recently. <laughs> so I'll oh, be relying on Pete to... That's yeah. specific? Okay. <laughs> well, Sounds I read good. the first sixth early, and then I read the, la- the next 60 pages. It's about 400 pages long, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know... Should we? What do you think, Pete? Should we start by having you talk about Bruce Sterling and your relationship to Bruce Sterling, or should we talk about a summary of what the book's about? Yeah, let's let's go Bruce and then go to the book. Um, and you might be the person to really do the heavy lifting on this the summary because you've got the advantage of having not 
read the book cover to cover yet. So, like, the risk of a spoiler is non-existent. Fair enough. So, Pete, uh, first tell me, when did you first read Bruce Sterling? Uh, let's see. Bruce Sterling came out with, uh, yeah, I don't need to qualify, the most famous short story collection of the cyberpunk era called Mirror Shades. And so I read one of his stories in that and realized he was the editor and started nosing around for his other work. And like the more I read, the more I liked. Um, it's uh, Bruce Sterling is very unique in the era in that not only was he a writer for his times, like he was definitely a writer for cyberpunk in a lot of ways. The other part of it that's kind of interesting is that it was deliberate like with a lot of uh, authors or a lot of painters you know they find themselves in the middle of a movement and they go with that whereas bruce sterling looked around talked to william gibson talked to some of the uh, the other up-and-comers and said let's make a movement there's a very good argument that he was the driving force at least like socially about cyberpunk uh, in the same way that that Gibson was the 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 initial spark. Yeah, that's very interesting. I've heard a little bit of that history. I know that um, Sterling was one of the first readers of Neuromancer and was really egging on and encouraging Gibson, uh, who before writing Neuromancer, maybe after, was a pretty like a pretty dissolute hippie by his own description. Um, and I think Sterling was one of the people who you know kind of helped him uh, become the legend that he has become. And I think you point out something really important, which is, like, there's a lot of debates that Pete and I haven't even gotten that deep into about, like, when did cyberpunk begin? What is cyberpunk? Like, how do we track its origins? And what does the term mean? We talked about what the term means a fair amount. We have our own theories about that. But, yeah, you could argue that there are things that qualify as cyberpunk that predate Neuromancer or predate the work that Sterling was doing. But what I think what you said is very interesting and very true, which is, like, insofar as this was a conscious desire to start a movement. And insofar as cyberpunk was an intentional effort to do a broadside against what was dominant in science fiction or dominant in um, letters generally, or the culture generally, then Bruce Sterling is perhaps the guy. Yeah, I mean, somebody had to start shouting cyberpunk over and over. And I mean, that that makes it sound like I don't think he's a good writer. And I really do. I, I really enjoy his work. But like a lot of what he did to sort of like get those authors together and get the branding together. It's a big part of what he's famous for. Yeah, and I mean, to be clear, that's a that's a tremendous part of the history of the arts, as you yourself kind of pointed out about how movements have functioned. Um, and so clearly, uh, Sterling is a guy who has some organizational capacity and some leadership abilities, which is not always true of good artists. <laughs> and that's all, you know, I mean, that's all interesting as a segue to what this book is about, because this book came out in 88, I believe, according to yeah. my edition. Um, so it was not on the vanguard of cyberpunk. I think cyberpunk was probably pretty established and understood by the time Islands in the Net came out. And I'm sure, obviously, as you said, Sterling had done work in the genre before that. Um, this would be the end game of the Reagan era moving into the Bush one era. Um, and we've talked a lot about the relationship between cyberpunk and the neoliberal turn. And this is a particular moment in it. Um, as we'll see, when we get to like the way that ideology works in this book, but I guess the point um, that I want to make is that I, my initial reflex reading this was that it's not, it didn't give me um, that sort of overwhelming cyberpunk feeling 
in the way that certain things we've read, certainly Neuromancer. I think, did we, did we read, was that a, a story by Sterling we read, the one that's in Chattanooga? Yeah, yeah, the the Bicycle Repairman, that, that was him. Yeah, and that's like just, that is straight to the vein cyberpunk. And I say that because Bicycle Repairman, much like Neuromancer, or much like, um, you know, early stage Neil Stevenson, for instance, which came after this, is... <laughs> you said that like early stage cancer. <laughs> no, I love Stevenson. In fact, I was one of the things I wanted to say is that because we're deciding to break down books into, into smaller chunks, um, that gives us a, a clear opportunity to do Snow Crash and actually break it up a bit. Um, yeah. Anyway, so like, but the point is like those stories, I think one of the things that really defines cyberpunk in specific terms for me and defines it in terms that are not just sort of generalized, um, superficial aesthetic terms, like the the difference between cyberpunk just meaning like I'm wearing a shiny purple trench coat and have uh, digital implants in my hair. That's like what a lot of people think when they think of cyberpunk, the difference between that and like the deeper uh, thematic concerns of the genre is in Bicycle Repairman or Neuromancer, a lot of other things, it's all about canny individual operators who are making the most of a highly fragmented, fully mercenary, kind of decentralized, broadly ungoverned system. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the core cyberpunk is about the collapse of the state as we know it, and authority is very fluid, um, and there's a constant sort of scrambling of factions and everything is mediated by capitalist commerce in a way that's, that's very familiar to us now in the uh, gig economy era. But anyway, I, I thus far, so I don't know what Islands in the Net's going to become. In the first third, Islands in the Net is not exactly that. And that's because it's about this woman, uh, Laura, and her husband, David, and they live in a lodge in Galveston, Texas. Uh, two two facts I want to call out here. One, uh, Sterling was raised in Galveston, Texas, and two, David is two years younger than you. Uh, he, he was born in 1992. Oh yeah, so this book takes place. What is, what's the exact year? Remind me. Oh Are god, we, I'd have to go back and look, but it's right. It's the near now. It's right about now. It's like right around now. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think Laura is cast as being in her early 30s, if I got that correctly. Um, yes. Anyway, they live, they live in this what's called a lodge, which is like a communal space uh, governed by what they call, I think, worker democracy. But it's part of a giant corporation called Rhizome that's all over the world. And it's a, it's a for-profit corporation that is governed by direct democracy of workers. So a lot of the discussion is about like the elections for who the new executives are going to be for Rhizome. And Laura and David are simultaneously living this kind of inten- like futuristic, intentional commune life um, where they're all doing chores and manual labor and also running this corporate entity at the same time, which is a really interesting take on kind of like on the, on the sort of models of communal living that we've talked about in sci-fi, like when we did um, Amaryllis uh, recently, sort of... It, it, this this is simultaneously the kind of mega corporate mercenary world of cyberpunk and the sort of like eco communism that you see crop up at, at various points in sci-fi history. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, yeah, very much so. It, it's sort of interesting because I uh, part of, part of me finds this uh, this move in the direction you know the 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 concept of of, of work as fun. Presented here more believable than what I found in Amaryllis. 
Right. Well, I think a crucial point here is that there is a proto-internet um, in this world called the net. Uh, yep. You know, so much like we see in Gibson. Um, and there, also... There's that, a, oh, go sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say there's there's some prophecy done by... by uh, by Sterling here that actually did play out was okay, but like in the current context makes him look like an idiot. Like well, I, he talks yeah. about he, the usefulness and the rise of the fax machine and how it combines with other tools to, to perform multi-use computers. I mean, that just sounds like gibberish. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that, that happens to science fiction, right? Like you can be as, as smart about extrapolating as you want. You're never going to get it even close to exactly right. Um, and, and he's a victim of that certainly 32 years, uh, later, you know, I think that the, the key points of convergence between this and other like classic cyberpunk, uh, would be that there is a proto internet that authority is once again, very fragmented. There are like different competing and overlapping authorities. State sovereignty is always being called into question. And there's a focus on, uh, the ways in which sort of capital flows, banking, um, sort of corporations, both nimble and lumbering, are the real players, uh, of real power players. And there's a bunch of different mysteries that spawn out of that. Now, and one thing I'll be honest with you, Pete, is I did not, I, I had trouble tracking the different factions in the first part of this book. There was a lot, a lot thrown out there. Yeah. I, I think that's really understandable. I mean, uh, one of it's you can just sort of look. Can I babble about that for a second? Please. Okay. Well, it, you you can sort of look at them in terms of their kind and sort them that way. You have these corporations that look like they were designed by the guy who wrote Walden Two. You know, where it's 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 designed to have a holistic life approach, and those corporations appear to be more or less running the world, like. Uh, some people working for the corporation, they keep making references like, well, this person used to work for the CIA while there was a still a CIA. And the there's a series of governments. Those governments appear to have been largely hollowed out. And the decision was made by these corporations that they should exist, but they don't have anywhere near the power they used to, particularly military power. Like a big part of what's happening here was nuclear disarmament. And then you have things on the fringes. You've got uh, places like Granada and Singapore, and you know the the uh, the sort of the island states near Greece and stuff, where uh, there isn't really any corporate hold. So what happens is smaller groups go in there and say, "Well, we've got some land. There's no laws here against drug experimentation and medical science being a little wonky. So let's just do all those things." And so a big part of this book is about the corporations looking at those small things and saying, well, okay, they're doing all these things to gain power, and uh, they're potentially incredibly dangerous. The best thing we could do is get them a seat at the table, like help them be successful to the point where they have their own own, uh, bureaucracy and their own internal limitations so they no longer have this advantage that makes them irresponsible. And that's sort of like the premise initially of the book is one of these corporations starting to form uh, uh, relationships with these pirates, basically, and trying to get them to form a consortium. Yeah, that's very well said. Uh, am I to understand, like, I can, I read the first 60, 70 pages or so a while ago. It's that rhizome, the one that Laura and David are with, 
um, wants to bring, like you said, the Granadans and the Singaporeans uh, and stuff into their kind of fold and, and legitima- legitimize what they're doing, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're basically trying to turn them into a group that can be negotiated with. Like if Granada and Singapore, for example, partnered to the point where they fo- they had one voice, they'd have to form agreements, there'd be restrictions on them, and they'd basically web themselves up to the point where they weren't crazy, irresponsible assholes. And that's sort of their goal, is by giving them, them that recognition and success, they'll be victims of it. Yeah, so I think this is where we give Sterling credit for being prophetic, which is that this is 88. Um, the Soviet bloc has not yet collapsed. I mean, it certainly at that point was on the ver- was pretty wobbly. But I think what he's foreseeing quite accurately here is the way that a world order that had different poles of power, um, you know, mostly that being NATO or the Soviet Union, um, was going to sort of consolidate into, you know, a more broadly liberalized regime of international trade that would accord with neoliberalism. And so then you'd have all of these states that had been economically siloed off or were, or were filling whatever role they were filling in relation to these bigger powers. Um, and then we want to get them on board with the IMF and the World Bank, and we want to put them in the World Trade Organization. We want to make sure that uh, they liberalize their economies to be friendly for um, U.S. and other corporations from allied countries, et cetera, et cetera. And I think Sterling is like, that process was certainly already underway in the 80s, but like he is uh, doing an interesting job projecting how some of that would go. And I think one of the most interesting things that he did was um, foresee the way and the cynicism with which that process would treat ideology of any of any kind other than, you know, the sort of prevailing supposedly post-ideological neoliberalism, because um, in this story, people who still believe in socialism or who still believe in colonial liberation, like we go to Granada in the first third of this book, uh, Laura and David get sent on, on an emissary mission after Laura witnesses the drone assassination, another prophetic thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, so there's a drone assassination. That's the big point of action in the first third of this book. Um, they're on their little, like, eco-compound in Galveston on the balcony, and this Granadan guy who's like a classic Rasta gets assassinated by a drone while Laura is standing next to him. And so through a convoluted process, Rhizome decides to send Laura and David and their baby, which I think is hilarious, to <laughs> Granada as emissaries of the corporation to sort of figure out what's going on or and or apologize or like it's not really I, honestly it's not very clear to me what they're doing there but <laughs> they end up there um, and at the point where I stopped reading they're still there uh, and you know they run into this guy who's named wait for it Andre Tarkovsky uh, <laughs> just like the director who is a Polish emigre from uh, the Warsaw Pact. And is it, but is is emigrated, but is is also, or I guess I guess in this world the Soviet Union has you know essentially collapsed at least, and like he, uh, you know, he still had died in the world communist, and he's like he's a kind of a figure of fun because he's always talking about things that everyone else considers outmoded, uh, you know, like the, the 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 fulfillment of the potential of the people and all these things that. Uh, you know, are so silly. Um, <laughs> right. And then you have the Granadans who have like a hodge- hodgepodge of beliefs that are sort of like post-colonial. You have some Rastas. There's also flooding on the peripheries, this sort of um, prostitute uh, religious order. I forget. I have to remind myself. Church of Ishtar. Called. 
Church of Ishtar, they're clearly going to be important in some way, but they're sort of on the periphery and, and everyone has a different view of their sexual morality. Um, anyway, I think that Sterling was very smart about um, the process of like sort of consolidation and bringing into the fold of this kind of unified, financialized global economy that was already underway in the 80s and would only accelerate after this book came out. So I think he does deserve, um, you know, some prophetic credit for this one. Well, let's let's talk briefly about where he screwed it up, <laughs> because um, I think one of the things that he did was which was incredibly wrong. I mean, to the point where I was rereading this earlier today and I just gasped was the idea that if corporations took power, their first thought would be to try and eliminate military power rather than utilize military power. Yeah, I think this is very. You're making you're going to the really the, the core question of this. The interesting point about this book for me, which is, um, we're in this story. We're in a period of broad global peace that everyone says is is more or less unprecedented. Not a lot of geopolitical tension or political violence around the world, and everyone agrees that sub-Saharan Africa is still an economic basket case that's suffering from famines. But other than that, the you know the world is sort of in this great period of stability and increasing prosperity for most people. Um, and the stewards of that, as Pete pointed out, are these giant corporations. And they're giant for-profit corporations, very much running under capitalism. But, at least in the case of Rhizome, and I assume some of, you know, many of the others, they're run in this very utopian way. They have worker democracy. Um, they are like sort of staunchly a combination of like meritocratic and democratic. Uh, and the workers mostly seem to be true believers who are fully integrated with the company. And that in the case of Lauren David, for instance, they live in the company's property, which they manage, and their whole sort of raison d'etre, their whole momentum of their lives is towards the furtherance of what Rhizome is doing. And they feel okay about that. So it's a vision of a world ruled by gigantic corporations that are, um, at least at first glance, you know, quite benevolent in the way that they treat their workers and that sort of embody this vision of communal living that is sustainable. Like a lot of talk here about like, there's not much real meat. They have like SCOP. Is SCOP like algae or what is it? I, I... Yeah, it's, uh, it stands for um, single, uh, let's single celled uh, something protein. And the, ba- the basic idea is you, you bacterially grow edible foodstuffs. And so, like you know, you, you you get you you get some broth together, and you put the bacteria in it, and after a while, you cut it into chunks, and you've got something that tastes like fish sticks or cheese or pancakes or whatever the hell you want. It's it's an end run around agriculture, and I think that has potential. I think I think he's a century early. Well, I, I do think that probably in our lifetimes we will see more synthetic meat, more experiments of uh, very similar to that. I think um, that's already happening, right? So, yeah. you know, yeah. I mean, so again, some of that is also very prescient, but it's also. It, I think the key point is not whether or not it's prescient; it's that somehow we've engineered a world where gigantic for-profit corporations are running things in a kind of highly democratic and highly sustainable and way in which has a lot of foresight and that is a really interesting thing to posit that i think you'd have a tremendously difficult time getting readers to believe in in 2020 <laughs> well it's almost like the book is saying look uh, neoliberalism works because it works 
You know what I mean? And like, like that's sort of the argument of, of the entire uh, economic and political structure here is that, look, it works. And I mean, we don't have quite what they were describing and close enough and it doesn't work. You know, I mean, like if 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 the book was an actual argument towards this sort of structure, it would be horrifying looking at it today. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I, I'll add the complexity I always add, which is to say, I don't know. I don't want to put like literalize what Sterling himself is saying, but you're totally right. Take the, take the world of the book and it has an incredibly optimistic view of where capitalism specifically in the neoliberal era, could go. And it's one that we know very much has not happened for a lot of different reasons. Um, and I think also the, like a, re- a really mundane point here, we can, we can scale down from like the ecological questions. A really mundane point here would be like, you know, 1988, we'd already entered uh, the era of like global liberalization broadly and, and what we call the neoliberal turn, especially in Western countries. And what that meant was that sort of the security of workers' lives in general, um, whether it was the safety net as a whole run by the state or your job security within corporations, was already being dramatically shaken up from sort of its peak maybe two decades earlier. Um, sure. We were already there. And in th- intervening 32 years, all of that has only accelerated, right? To the point where, like, if you let, – let's, let's run a thought experiment. Let's say you work for a prestigious – globe-spanning corporation. Let's say that you work for Google and Google says to you, hey, do you want to go run this cool beach lodge in Galveston that's sustainable and you, you will like integrate your life entirely with it, but you'll get free housing and you'll get, a, you'll get to vote on what happens like with this maybe entire chunk of our corporate corporations and you know, you'll get to live this kind of experimental uh, commune lifestyle on our behalf. So here's the thing. If you already work for, if you already work for Google, you might say yes, because that could be cool. Okay, I'll say, first of all, you might do it. Second of all, you sure as hell wouldn't trust them. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course you wouldn't. Yeah, and I mean, I will say uh, the, the devil hasn't jumped up in this book yet. I mean, it, it, it doesn't have a blindly optimistic view of how this setup is, but it's still too optimistic for me. I mean, it, and I don't know, it's, it's beating him up for this on some level is a little bit like beating him up for thinking that faxes were the wave of the future. Yeah, I, I feel no need to beat up on Sterling. I think that, you know, in 1988, a lot of people, like it was already, by the time I was born in 1990, it was already kind of like, out there in the discourse that we need to get better at certain things ecologically, that we need to think about global warming. These are, these are things that, these are discourses that have existed in my entire lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, to be clear, we did get better. There are certain things ecologically we've gotten better at. There's a lot of things we got worse at. And <laughs> climate is obviously just, I mean, we're living and we're no longer anticipating climate disaster. We're living in it. So speaking of which, how's the air where you're at, man? Oh, fine. I mean, it looks really bad. If you look up at the sky, it's very smoky, but it's like I'm not smelling it on the ground, and I don't think it's it's causing much harm here. This is just this is we're pretty far from the Oregon fires. I I feel for everyone in the midst of the Oregon and California fires, and just anywhere near major fires right now. Luckily, I'm not too close to one. Um, Yeah. Anyway, enough about that. Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say my my. my my house and like my wife and dog are going to be hit by it on Friday, and so we're 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 talking a lot about what to do for air quality and that sort of thing. So it's on my mind. 
Well, I would guess in Vegas. It my guess is it won't be too bad in Vegas. I certainly hope not. <laughs> yeah, it's it's going to spike up to about a hundred, where yeah. like Oregon right now is five hundred. One hundred sucks, but if you, if your lungs are healthy, you're going to be okay. Yeah, I mean we're we're like I think significantly over a hundred here, and like it's it's really not causing me any problems personally. I guess I have a little bit of a sniffle, but like you know I feel fortunate to not be worse hit by. It. But yeah, I mean the point is like. The, the point here being that, like, there were a lot of things people were aware of around the time by the by the time this book came out, roughly, um, and many of those things have simply gotten worse. And when I say you would never trust a Google or an Apple or whoever making these claims as a corporation, Pete's Pete's totally right. I'm sure this picture of this world is going to get more complicated in this story, and I, you know, I of course anticipated from very early in the story that Rhizome Corporation would be exposed for some kind of perfidy. I just think that the attitudes of the characters as they're depicted are attitudes you'd have a hard time finding anywhere now. Because even if you are fairly high up at a corporation like Apple, even if you are pretty happy with your situation and you're making good money, like your awareness of what can happen to you and of how corporations work and the brutality of how capitalism works is still very much imminent. In fact, if you've risen high, you're probably very, very aware of that. You probably had to fire people at some point. And I, I just think that just culturally our sort of pervasive sense of like, yes, I have the ability to angle for things, hopefully, and many of us do, and, and make things better for myself, but also like what you're exposed to and what, what the institutions of our world can do to you with very little recourse. Um, I think we're all painfully aware of that at all times in a way that these characters have not shown themselves to be. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with that. I uh, We talked a little bit about utopias uh, at the beginning of this, and uh, uh, can you think of one you'd compare this one to? Like, what, what's, what is this closest to in terms of our reading, do you think? Man, I have to think about that. Um, have we read, like, a corporate utopia like this, like, near, like, fairly near future? I don't. Someone who's been listening to the pod can remind me if we have. I don't. It doesn't remind me of anything uh, directly. I do think that this is a somewhat utopian book, at least in the first part. Like the the world that it's positing is a version of a capitalist utopia. Um, you know, where there's an awareness of suffering around the world. There's an awareness of of things that have gone wrong. Like for instance, a lot of Galveston is just wreckage left by hurricanes at this point. And one of the things that Laura's husband does is goes out and salvages stuff from houses that have been wrecked by hurricanes but again the lodge works and the lodge is made out of like sand like concrete they made directly from sand and on the beach and all this stuff um well and there's all this talk in galveston it's like yeah well you know it used to be they had cotton they had all these other things and there's really nothing here anymore so we're doing tourism and stuff we're just trying to make it work and that's the way the world is and they keep going and it's like in just a paragraph you have described so much pain for so many people and just went breezily by you know yeah, I mean, the biggest risk here is sort of naturalizing um, the the you know miseries, some of which are familiar and some of which are more imagined. But like that is always the danger of neoliberalism or of capitalism more broadly is like that we just sort of bake in the pain that capitalism causes while getting hysterical about the the, the pain that communism has caused. Right? Like we all we can right. all list off the crimes of communism we've been inculcated with as Americans. Uh, but like, let me get my black book out. Right. And and yet we have to sort of like, we have to sort of be taught or unlearn, uh, that which prevents us from saying, well, like, let's list some of the, the very, very long list of crimes that can be ascribed to capitalism and the misery that capitalism has caused. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of things from this era, be they sci-fi or any other form of narrative art, often run that risk just because they, and this is not really Bruce Sterling's fault, they just didn't live in the midst of really powerful critiques of these things in the way that we do now. Um, right. 30 years earlier they did, you know, certainly 50 years earlier they did. Um, and, you know, now 30 years later they did. But this was this was a low ebb of like powerful critiques of capitalism. And so you get things like this. Things that feel very dated, despite not being that old. Um, I think a lot of this, this in many ways feels dated, more dated than a lot of the older, uh, somewhat older stuff we've read. Oh, I think that's quite true. There's a um, Ursula Le Guin wrote a short story that I've I've talked about occasionally on here. Here, the the ones who walk away from Omelas. And the basic idea is it's a perfect society, but if you look around, you hear crying in a basement, and it turns out through one mechanism or another, the happiness and success of everything happening in the town is based upon the the misery and basically torture of that one child in a basement. And, you know, she's like, you know, the real story is about the ones who walk away from Omelas, something along those lines. And, like... This book uh, is sort of like, well, you know, Omelas is pretty good. <laughs> you, know I mean? you look at the numbers, you know, most people are doing okay. You know, that that's, it, it's, it, it's, it, it seems like, I, I have no idea if Sterling even read that story at all, but the feel of it is like, there are acceptable losses. Yeah, and I mean, again, that's just, that's the reality we live in. That's the reasoning we get, uh from the sort of liberal economists who have framed capitalism for us. Um, So I don't want to, I don't want to take Sterling too strongly to task for his own moral sense, because I think that the things we're talking about here are just things that were culturally pervasive at the time. And I think what Sterling is trying to do is imagine a particular model um, that might emerge out of that. And it's one that looks very optimistic to us because it, it posits a kind of corporate life and life for workers that is much, much different than what we live under. And, you know, to be clear, I think if all else were equal and our relationship to corporations were that we had worker democracy and could vote on the leadership and had more security within those systems, I think that would be a better world. I don't think it would be my perfect world. And I think that in many ways, so here's where I want to be very fair to Sterling. I think what this book's ultimately going to be about is the way that that pain gets pushed away to the periphery. And you're already getting some of that with the visit to Granada. Um, the way that producing this kind of like narrow walled garden utopia uh, produces pain for someone else elsewhere, which is, you know, kind of how, <laughs> that's how imperialism works broadly. Um, and I think so. I think that's all going to get addressed. I, I just think that it's, it's, there, it would be difficult to write this book now because if you wanted to convince readers of the existence of this kind of community that Laura and David live in, you could not couch it within sort of transnational corporate capitalism because everybody would be like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. why, why don't they just all go to Airbnbs? You know? <laughs> yeah, well, you could couch it. I mean, you could couch it in like some kind of romanticized monarchy, for instance. You could couch it in uh, a certain kinds certain kinds of socialism. You could you could frame this exact world. It would just be a hard sell to put it within a for-profit corporation. Um, yes, and I think that's a really that's the, that's the thing that really sticks out to me. So what I'm going to do right now is, um, unless you have something you want to add before I do this, I'm going to read a little bit from the opening of this book. But actually, what I was going to suggest is that you read something from the book. So no, I have nothing to add. Okay, great. Um, 
This is the opening of Islands in the Net. The sea lay in simmering quiet, a slate green gumbo seasoned with warm mud. Shrimp boats trawled the horizon. Pilings rose in clusters, like blackened fingers, yards out in the gentle surf. Once, Galveston beach homes had crouched on those tar-stained stilts. Now barnacles clustered there, gulls wheeled and screeched. It was a great breeder of hurricanes, this quiet gulf of Mexico. Laura read her time and distance with a quick downward glance. Green indicators on the toes of her shoes, flickering with each stride, counting mileage. Laura picked up the pace. Morning shadows strobed across her as she ran. She passed the last of the pilings and spotted her home, far down the beach. She grinned as fatigue evaporated in a flare of energy. Everything seemed worth it. When the second wind took her, she felt that she could run forever, a promise of indestructible confidence bubbling up from the marrow. She ran in pure animal ease like an antelope. The beach leapt up and slammed against her. Laura lay stunned for a moment. She lifted her head, then caught her breath and groaned. Her cheek was caked with sand, both elbows numbed with the impact of her fall. Her arms trembled as she pushed herself up onto her knees. She looked behind her. Something had snagged her foot. It was a black, peeling length of electrical cable, junked flotsam from the hurricane, buried in the sand. The wire had whiplashed around her left ankle and brought her down as neatly as a lariat. Okay, so I, I picked the opening partly because I often read from the opening, but in that particular case, I like, I think it's a, a wonderfully descriptive, evocative opening in a lot of ways. There's just some sort of conventionally um, good prose in there describing the Galveston that she lives in and the, and the beach and looking out at the Gulf of Mexico. But I think also specifically there's a nice sense of the way that, that this um, sort of eco-utopia they're trying to create or have posited for themselves is it colliding with this highly tech- technologized world in the form of like you know sea junk washing up? Um, so that's a wonderful. I think that's just that's just a clever piece of writing to sort of usher us into a, a cyberpunk narrative. Is to say you're going on a, for a run on this beautiful beach and looking out the horizon, and then you get tripped up by a piece of um, junked machinery that's buried in the sand. I, I appreciated that a lot, and I think this book uh, deserves credit for those sort of beat-by-beat aesthetic choices that Sterling is making. Yeah, no, well put, man. Um, so uh, l- let's let's talk about what we're doing next. I, I, the plan is for uh, our next episode, we're going to hit the, the next third. Is that the idea? Uh, maybe even less. I'm wondering if we could string this out to four. Um, so m- let's, let's talk about it. But yeah, folks, if you're reading this book or want to catch up, what we've been discussing is the first four chapters, um, which is only about a third of the book. And for next time, we will read no more than, than the next third, maybe less. And so you've got time to catch up. I don't think we've, we've really spoiled much. The only thing we've really spoiled is um, the drone assassination, which happens pretty early on. So, yeah, if you want to catch up with us, uh, please do. And, like, you know, we'd love your feedback on this approach. I, I like to think that um, splitting these novels up will actually – perhaps paradoxically let us do more novels because for me I have so much other reading to do. I'm reading Ulysses right now <laughs> and I'm reading other stuff for my other classes. Um, I have a lot to do, frankly. And I think this will actually let us do more books over time, at least at least the, the pair of us. I know that Pete's been very 
diligent with our buddy Carlo doing those crap books episodes, which I appreciate. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, one one way to frame it is it's a much easier to sell to you, a person who's with limited time for this, that reading a particular book is a good investment because it covers more than one episode. See, it's it's a capitalism argument. <laughs> yes, <laughs> true. But this show is not about me. I want to make sure our listeners get more content too. And I think honestly, with good with books like this that have a lot going on. I don't think it'll be a problem to discuss, um, you know, over a few different episodes. And I think when we get to something like Snow Crash, which I'd love to do in the not too distant future, that's, you know, a nice thick book like that with a richly built world. Easily get multiple episodes out of that. So I'm looking forward to trying this out. Um, anything you want to add before we call it for today, Pete? Uh, yeah. Uh, do you think we could make uh, Islands in the Stream the outro? <laughs> If you want, sure, that means you get to send the email, though. <laughs> okay, you got it, man. That's fair. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Later, guys. I said I took